Good to, be, good to be speaking with you this morning. Um, if you're new today, my name is David. Um, I'm part of the senior leadership team here uh, in Redeemer. Um, and uh, if you're if you're new, you're 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 really welcome. Um, uh, we're we're just we're a community that are trying to we're trying to ask better questions and trying to tell better stories. So no matter where you are, as Dave was saying at the start, no matter where you are in your faith journey, whether you're seeking whether you're believing, whether you're practicing, whether you're doubting, no matter where you are, you're welcome here. Um, and we hope that you're blessed by being with us today. And um, we're beginning a new series today, but before I, I, I jump into that, I just want to do two things. Firstly, just please do grab a conversation with Matt and Cheryl. Um, uh, I think Cheryl, I don't know if she's, she's is she downstairs. Grab a, grab a little conversation with Matt afterwards if you can. Just make him feel really welcome. Extend that Redeemer welcome to him and his family this morning. It's great to have him. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a little bit of an interview. Matt and I um, up here um, playing on the on table Sunday. And you'll get to know Matt a little bit better. Um, and we'll be talking about just what we hope Matt will be, be doing to serve our community on our staff team. But I'm really grateful for him and for the relationship that we're beginning to, to forge together. And so I'm, I'm hopeful of how that will go. And so I hope you are too. And so just, yeah, um, extend your welcome to him. He's keeping me in order already. I'll just tell you that. So, um, <laughs> I've never dealt with so many spreadsheets in a week in all my life. Um, yeah, so last week, last Sunday, we had our friend Jason Miller here, who um, hopefully you were here Um if you, if you weren't here, please do go and check out his talk on our podcast, um, because um, he spoke on the Imago Day, which is the, um, the idea that we're made in the image of God. Every single human who's ever breathed oxygen and walked this planet is, is made in the image of God. It's, an, it's, a fun, it's a fundamental, actually, we're fundamentalists on this issue, um, that everyone is created in the image of God, that everyone is precious. And um, Jason helped us think about that by using this mantra called everyone an icon. And so that's the title of his talk. So if you, if you weren't around, please do check that out. But I thought I wanted to encourage you to listen to that, not because it's a new message necessarily, actually, but it's because uh, Jason unknowingly, I guess, has really just dragged up from the past a, f- a core part of who we are as a community, and um, we're actually um, nine years old as a community, I don't know if you know that, but like next year, Redeemer will be 10, which just makes me feel really quite old, because I, I was around more or less from the, from the beginning, and I know some of you were too, and, and um, if you were to wind the clocks back 10 years, and you were to walk around the corner to Gordon Street in Belfast, and you'd walk into the OEM Music Center, and you were to sit down, you would have discovered a, a ragamuffin bunch of people sitting around trying to figure out what exactly this community is that we're trying to begin and what God might want to do in Belfast. And the, stick, the floors were sticky and the walls were with beer and the, and the walls were covered with memorabilia from Irish music royalty from the undertones to you 2 And if you were there, you'll remember it. And in that place, that ragamuffin group of people would have been speaking about something called God's proxy Polaroid. Anyone remember that? I know you do, Ryan. Um, it was this idea that the, oh, that's beautiful typeset there. I really lined that up well. That's it's supposed to be, anyway. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, this idea that, um, the Polaroid was like this metaphor of what Jason was talking about last week, that we're like imaging, like we're an image of, of the divine, that we're iconing God in the world. Every human is, but sometimes, of course, that, that image can be a little faded. Like sometimes you have a, a nice, crisp, pristine Polaroid, and sometimes you've got a, a faded uh, Polaroid, and, and that's just uh, because often we just don't always image God in the world um, the way that we should. We see other humans not exactly imaging or iconing the divine or what we know of the divine in the world. It looks very different, and they're portraying a different image. And the effects of that are because just the sickness of our souls, this, the brokenness of our world, can taint that image in us. But yet, that image is still there. It's still in me. It's still in you. It's still in all of us that we are this. God's proxy Polaroid, if you will, where everyone is an icon. Um, and so in the early days of scheming about what Redeemer might become, what type of community uh, we might be, um, Jason has helped resurrect that message that was there at the very beginning. It is a foundational piece of who we are. 
It's part of our DNA. And, um, and he's dragged it right back up and he's reminded us again of the type of story that we want to tell in Belfast. That's the type of story we want to tell in Belfast. It's the type of community that God has called us to be. So please do go and check it out. Our team were really delighted to spend more time with Jason uh, last weekend. And uh, I just wanted to let you know just how we experienced that. We really enjoyed him, his, pre- his presence with us, the message that he brought. But we also really enjoyed learning about what he's doing in South Bend. And I tell you that not because Jason is uh, the point of this story. It's because we just felt really encouraged that there are others around the world doing something that resonates a little bit with what we're doing here. We don't necessarily want to just be a normal church, if that's even a thing. Um, We love all of the brothers and sisters in our city and all of the different shapes and types of churches. Um, And we just know we have a particular shape as well. We have a particular mission that God's called us to, and I think um, that's becoming clearer. And so we're just trying to stay rooted to an ancient faith in a modern world, and that was just what we discovered with Jason and what he's trying to do with his community. So it's just nice to have friends that are, uh, that are doing something similar around the world. Um, so Jason has teed us up perfectly to jump into our new series. Um, the joke was that he teed us up um, just in time for me to completely shank it right into the, the next fairway, but hopefully we'll do something that's actually productive this morning. So we're going to um, talk about this idea of um, a community in exile, this series called Resident Aliens. Before we do, I'd just love to, to pray. Is that okay? Father, I thank you for your presence here, for your presence through song through company, through community, through each other, through welcome, through reflecting upon your story, upon your promises, upon your love. Thank you for being with us today. And I pray that you would speak to us, that you would reorientate us around this story, this better story that you are trying to tell and that you're keeping us connected to, Lord, that we are beloved sons and daughters of the divine. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two young fish. uh, They're swimming uh, along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming along the other way. He nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish, they swim on for a bit, And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? I was hoping for a laugh, I didn't get it, so I gotta work on that. David Foster Wallace, famous American author, um, unfortunately now passed away. He's getting, what he's getting at in that little little anecdote is really that sometimes the most obvious, um, ubiquitous, important realities are actually the ones that we just can't see. They're right in front of our noses. Um, They're all around us. They're so pervasive that we just actually can't even see them. And sometimes that's even uh, as important uh, or as never more true than when we're actually talking about something called culture um, and the world that we live in today. I'm not talking about all cultures. I'm talking about perhaps the one that we're most used to, the one that we've been immersed in the longest that we perhaps don't quite notice is right there. But no doubt if I was to take some of us in this room and we were to throw ourselves into a completely different culture, um, we would really notice that. Um, We would have an extreme reaction. Um, I'm not going to stretch the aquatic animal analogies too far, but um, this might look like the reaction you would get if you threw a frog in a boiling, boiling pan of water or something. It would just jump right back out, you know, because it's just um, so much of a difference in temperature. It's like, oh, it's like culture shock, you know? And there's some uh, cultures around the world, I'm sure if we went into them, it would just grab us. It would like shock us to the extreme. Um, but over the past 50 years, our culture here, our native culture in the West, um, has changed in temperature. Um, But because it's maybe our everyday lives, perhaps we um, just haven't realized how much, or maybe we have realized, but because it's been changing so slowly, we've just sort of adapted. You know, like the previous aquatic animal analogy, that the frog actually in cold water, but sort of being boiled slowly to death. Perhaps that's a better analogy, like some sort of spiritual Stockholm syndrome, 
where the culture has just swallowed us up and we haven't even noticed. Um, well, today, uh, we're looking at these cultural realities and what they might actually mean uh, about the church and about our communal identity as the church. Because over the last year to 18 months, we've spoken a lot about what it means for our own faith, our own individual discipleship or our following of Jesus or apprenticing after the rabbi, becoming more like him. We've done series like The Way, which looked at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto. We've done series like Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We've done series like Holy Habits that look at the practices of uh, a follower of Jesus. But in this series, Resident Aliens, we, we just felt we wanted to talk about the communal uh, identity of this thing here that we call the church and why should we even care about it? And so that's why we've come up with a series um, called Resident Aliens, The Church in a Strange Age because we do actually live in a strange age. The cultural tectonic plates have been shifting and this has left many of us asking these big questions about what, what is the church? What is the role of the church? How, how should we read and understand the culture, what purpose does the church have in a time like this? And so over the next two months, in six different talks, by, our, um, by uh, Stephanie, Dan, myself, and Ryan, we're gonna look at what it means to be a community of death, what it means to be a community of inclusion, what it means to be a community of difference, what it means to be a community of old, and what it means to be a community of new. I'm going to start today um, by hopefully giving a little bit of an introduction to this big idea that we as a community here are like a community in exile. A community in exile, that's what I want to talk about today. Much like the fish that uh, perhaps we've not noticed the culture that we're swimming in or the frog that's been slowly boiling we haven't really noticed how much things are really changing all around us. Um, where once the church sat comfortably alongside the state and the wider culture was overwhelmingly, quote, Christian. Um, we're living in a different time. Some call that post-Christian context, post-Christian culture, leaving us often feeling like aliens. Uh, like we don't, quite belong all the time, but we do. Where once upon a time, it seemed like our society was apparently a Christian nation, whatever that means. Now we feel like strangers in a foreign land. By the way, I'm not saying that that's a bad move either. Maybe it's good that we're feeling a little bit unsettled. Because from the fourth century in, uh, from the fourth century, Europe has largely been Christian. Been, Christianity has moved from being this radical, dynamic, some might say revolutionary or like a subversive movement really that was underground to becoming the state religion of the Roman Empire and a static institution with all of its attendant structures, priesthood, sacraments. These, these decades of institutionalized Christian religion and culture created something we call or is known as Christendom. Christendom is this idea that countries that Christianity is just so dominant in or prevails in is the, is the majority religion. And so all of Europe is just like Christendom, church and state together. The problem is that as Bob Dylan sang, the times, they are a-changing. Christendom has had a good run since the fourth century, but in the last 200 years, really since the Enlightenment, the influence of and hold of Christendom has been diminishing rapidly in the West. Michael Frost says that an epoch of history, i.e. Christendom has, that shaped the contemporary church has crashed like a wave on the shore and left the church high and dry. But is this a bad thing? Is it really a bad thing or is this an opportunity? What is uh, this mean for us who are Christians who want to follow Christ but who find ourselves falling between the cracks, the cracks, falling into the cracks, sorry, between contemporary secular Western culture and this quaint old-fashioned church culture 
of respectability and conservatism, if we're in between those two things, how do we do that? How do we navigate the culture well? How do we somehow do that and yet remain faithful to this thing called the way of Jesus? I think this was a problem faced by the Jews in the book of Daniel. The purpose of the book of Daniel was to teach the Jews how to be exiles in a pagan culture, I guess. During the time, especially when they were dominated by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. In other words, the purpose of Daniel was to show that they could be a part of that empire in one sense, engaged in a responsible way with the culture, but yet be a part belonging to their God, Yahweh. So to be a part, but to be a part. To be a part, but to be a part. Yeah, got a laugh. Yes. How many of you understand, like, this is the deal um, of the church. This is the deal. Um, that we, we, we want to be responsible citizens in a place that we live, yet at the same time remain apart for God. Um, well, this is why Daniel was written, to help the Jews sort of navigate that, to help them figure that one out. And so we read in, in Daniel 1 of this, the siege of the armies of Babylon on Jerusalem and Israel. It says, in the, in the third year of the king of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So the children uh, of God were taken into exile. This idea of exile. This idea was also what Revelation, the book of Revelation, if you've ever opened that scary book at the end of the Bible, is all about. The book of Revelation was trying to teach Christians in the first century how to live as exiles in the pagan culture of the Roman Empire. You know all those monsters in Revelation, those pictures? They're actually just ripped out of Daniel. John's just ripped those out of Daniel because he wants to make the same point. He wants to help these followers of the way of Jesus negotiate living as cultural exiles in the Roman Empire while remaining faithful to Christ the King. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so like the Jews living in Babylon and the Christians living in the first century, we are called to be a people. The communal identity of the church is real. We are a people living in what you might want to call a modern day Babylon. And so to survive this, to survive this, to negotiate this, to be present in that, we have to do what Walter Brueggemann says. We need to rediscover ourselves as exiles. We need to rediscover ourselves as a community of exiles. Exiles that yearn to live freely, dangerously, and tenaciously in a world where faith does not have its own way. So historically, of late, the church has been too focused on trying to hold ground from the previous era of Christendom to ever have an imagination for the future and what it might look like to step forward. Exiles are driven back to their most dangerous stories, their most dangerous memories. They're, they practice dangerous promises like some of the ones we've been talking about today. They offer a dangerous critique of society and they sing dangerous songs which speak of an unexpected newness of life. So it's not an easy thing to do, but we're gonna give it a go, okay? Up for it, we're gonna give it a go. I'm gonna hopefully help us today to think about the communal identity of the church as resident aliens living in a strange age. And so to get that, I wanna give us, to help us give give us that vision, I want to do a really quick run through from exodus to exile, an overview of what it meant for the children of God um, to be moving into exile. I want to do that with you, okay? It's a little bit teaching, but hopefully it's interesting and useful, and I want you to come with me. Is that good? Right, here we go. So, exodus, Moses, exile, Daniel, 900 years, a long time that is the gap and here's the summary in the days of joseph abram migrated to egypt out of canaan because of a famine so the people of god the family of abram were now in egypt 
Over time, this family became the immigrant workforce of providing cheap labor to the Egyptian empire. Empires always need cheap labor. Always, all empires need cheap labor. This family of Abraham forced because of famine to migrate from Canaan to Egypt. And while they were there, they took on this new identity, this new name called Hebrews, which actually means one from beyond or foreigners. And the Hebrews, they were the cheap labor force of the empire under the Pharaoh's oppression. And they began to groan because their connection to the God of Abraham had diminished and they were living such a severe life, marginalized, outcast, foreign people suffering under the empire. Sounds familiar. And God heard and God saw their plight and their groans and God acted and raised up a deliverer. Anyone know? Prince of Egypt, Moses, you've seen the movie. Moses was a Hebrew who'd grown up in the courts of Pharaoh as a prince. So Moses, he grows up, he realizes he's actually one of the people that are being oppressed. He gets to know them, he sees that they're being abused as a cheap labor workforce. He gets angry, a sense of justice rises up in him. And in his sense of justice and zeal, he wants to be their liberator and untendedly he kills a man and has to flee from Egypt to the wilderness of Midian where he becomes a shepherd. He marries the daughter of the priest of Midian. Moses was in the wilderness then for 40 years. He'd run, fleed from Egypt, wilderness 40 years. And the, the divine, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh grabs him, that's the burning bush. And 80 years old, he returns to Egypt to confront Pharaoh this time with the word of the Lord of Yahweh. And he confronts Pharaoh with these words from scripture. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Wow. So Pharaoh is living in a world with many gods. And here's this guy, Moses, rocking up that tells Pharaoh that the God of the Hebrews, the God of the cheap labor workforce of your empire, the God of the immigrants, the God of the the brick-making people apparently have their own God amongst all the plethora of other gods. Mm. And then the claim on this people was that this God, that they were that they were this God's people and that this God wanted his people to be let go. So these weak, poor slaves of the empire, God calls his people the ones that do the work of the empire. And Pharaoh's like, hmm, some God this must be. But Moses said, let, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And, Mo, and Pharaoh says, no. And then we know Pharaoh needs the cheap labor force to build his empire. He needs the roads and the infrastructure of the kingdom. But what comes next? The plagues. And Pharaoh is convinced to let God's people go. And that's where we get to the Exodus and the Red Sea. And the people of Israel cross over the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness. It takes 40 years to go through the wilderness. That's a theme in the scriptures, 40 years. 40 years was Moses in Midian. 40 days was Jesus in the desert. Trying to, trying to re- react this whole scene because Jesus, of course, is the new Moses, the new liberator, the new deliverer. And so during the migration across to the promised land, on that journey, God gives this people his law at Mount Sinai, the 10 commandments. And the purpose of this law was to form Israel into a new kind of human society, one that the world had never seen before because all the civilizations that had come before, they were all the same and they've all been the same since. They have the same trajectory. They have their gods and their structures and their levels of hierarchy and power and God was up to something different. He wanted to form a new society society of worship and justice that would be governed by two commands. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the one true God and love your neighbor as yourself. A new community, worship, and justice. God is forming this new society that belonged to him, that he might save the world through that community. And so here we have Israel, the nation of Israel, formed and it was a peculiar people with the law in the wilderness. And they were God, Yahweh's people, a priestly nation. They didn't need a king like the other nations because they had Yahweh as their king. 
they would be a nation of priests and this new society on the earth. Remember, if you go back to Genesis and the family of Abraham, where we started out a moment ago, you'll remember that God said that Israel, this people, would be set apart as a blessing for the nations. God did not want to merely help save this one little group of Jews and send the rest to hell, essentially. He set Israel apart to be blessed and in turn become a channel of blessing to the rest of the world. You can read this in Genesis 12. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curse you, I will curse you. And in all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we are. We're right up to this point, tracking with me. We're still halfway through this journey. God did not call Israel just into existence, just to be this, this like reservoir of his blessing that was just, they were gonna hold for themselves. And they were gonna just sparingly give it out to others at will. No, God, the vision that God had for this community was to be a river that was gonna flow and it was gonna bless the nations, all of the earth. But Israel was constantly tempted to conform to be like the other nations. And that is the story of Israel, tempted by the idolatry or injustice. And the prophets, as you know, in that story had to keep calling the nation back to their God, to their one true God. And yet they just wanted a, they wanted a king, they wanted to be like the other nations, and yet God wanted to do something different. And so during that long history from Exodus to exile, some really good highlights, but most of the time the trajectory was really away from God. God was wanting to do this disruptive thing. He wanted to break the mold of every other nation that wanted to be all powerful and all conquering. And Israel was to be his people and in, in doing so would be a light to the Gentiles and a light to the world. What did Israel do in this brief overview of their history. They didn't want that. They wanted to be powerful. They wanted to be relevant. Even Solomon in his era, which was often seen as being successful. I mean, Solomon built a temple, but he also built, built temples to other gods. He had 700 wives. He built, uh, he had a, milit- a military that God had forbid in the Torah, and he had slave labor. I mean, he had all the aspects of an empire that you would want. He was really just trying to be Egypt. And yet Israel was a small nation. They were never gonna be a military might that took over the world. So that makes it even sadder. And this grieved God because God had called them to be a people, something new. And so this is right up to the exile where we find ourselves, 587 BC, Daniel chapter one, verse one, Nebuchadnezzar sends his armies to Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and the people who were in the promised land who in Jerusalem were captive, taken captive into exile and into Babylon. And this is this, this idea of exile. 900 years after being captive in Egypt, they were captive again in Babylon. And it's a disaster. And yet, it's actually when they're in exile that the Jews finally learn what it means to live as the people of God. It's when they're in exile that they don't go back to idolatry. It's actually in exile when they write their formative stories as we know the Old Testament. Because up to this point, they had the Torah. But you know all those books in the Bible, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, all of the stories that shape them and define them were written in Babylon, in exile. And so I share all of this today because we have to ask the question, how is this relevant to us, the church today? How might this inform how we live? Here are these exiles and they're in this foreign land. And they're telling themselves, they're comforting themselves by saying this is gonna be over in no time. It's gonna be over in no time. And along comes a prophet called Jeremiah and he says, "Uh -uh. this is gonna be 70 years. You ain't getting out of here. Your kids, they might. Your grandchildren, they might. But you're not. And so 
in, Jer in Jeremiah, we have a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the children of God in exile. And I want to just quickly read that letter. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets. I mean, I have like Obi-Wan Kenobi in my mind, like with the lightsaber and like, he's, I, that's, the, that's the image I have. Like he's writing to the, yeah, anyway. It was May the 4th on Friday. So, you know, May the 4th be with you. Thank you. These are the words that the letter Jeremiah the prophet sent from Israel to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets, and the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. I mean, the city is Babylon. Seek the welfare of Babylon where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Here's two things I wanna draw out of that passage, that letter that Jeremiah sent to the people of Israel as they were in exile in Babylon. Firstly, the seeking of the welfare of Babylon shows that the purpose, the first purpose of God's community in exile is to be good residents, is to settle down. Jeremiah is saying that even though Babylon is not their home, they're to make Babylon their home. They're to invest in it. They're to love it. They're to live in it. They're to seek its welfare. And they are to carve out lives for themselves in Babylon. See, what exilic language does, exile language does, it offers us an alternative to what you might call culture war. You heard of that? the rhetoric of the religious right. Instead of being at war with the surrounding culture, a people in exile presents a vision of God's people living peacefully within a foreign territory. That there is no political or cultural war to fight. They're to live there. They're to settle there. Bring my peace. Extend the borders of Eden into those places. Build gardens Bring my presence, good residents. Secondly, not only to be good residents, but the flip side of that coin, do not forget that your identity as the people of God of Israel reminds you of their mission because Jeremiah addresses them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He's reminding them that they belong to a different story. They belong to a different king, a different God, Yahweh. And so secondly, firstly, be good residents. Secondly, do not forget that your identity is as the people of God. Your mission as God's community in exile is not just to be good residents, but to be prophetic, to be a prophetic community. Aliens from another world living amongst the people, but not just as good residents, but as a prophetic voice pointing them to the way of hope, of rescue, of liberation, of being a river of blessing. Good residents that plant gardens and prophetic strangers from an alien world called the kingdom of God. This is the same story of the church today. This is what we as a church in Belfast in the 21st century are called to in our city to be good residents and a prophetic community 
that points the way to Jesus. Jesus actually speaks about this in the New Testament. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. And further on down in Matthew 5, he says you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. These two images of what the communal identity of the church, the people of God might be. The salt is reminiscent of the idea that the people in exile are like good residents, you know, embedded in the culture, a part of the culture, building homes, planting gardens, working for the flourishing of their city, of of their Babylon. And yet the imagery of the light of the city on a hill is reminiscent that we are set apart as a prophetic community, a prophetic voice that points all people to the living God, that God is doing a new thing, that there is a different way of being human in the world. And so the church is to be a flourishing community that points the way to the ultimate Moses, the ultimate liberator, the ultimate light who is Jesus. And so Isaiah and the other prophets, they've talked about this all of the time. Isaiah 60, verse one to three says, arise, shine, for your light arrives. The splendor of the Lord shines on you. For look, darkness covers the earth. Empire, sin, sickness, despair, evil. Human beings not living and iconing the divine in the world. Darkness covers the nations, but the light shines on you. His splendor appears over you. Nations come to your light, kings to your bright light. And the apostle Peter, he he talks about this too, the reality of what the church is as exile is a prophetic voice pointing to this marvelous light. In 1 Peter 2, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. That's First Peter 2. And so this morning, we're looking at what it means to be, to be the church, to be good residents, but a prophetic voice to be resident aliens in Belfast in the 21st century. And it's a bit of a conflict. It's not easy to be faithful to God in a modern day Babylon, to be salt and light to have our feet in like two different worlds. There's so much tension, so much tension. Even in the scriptures, this tension is there. John 3, 16 and 1 John 2 show us this tension. Bear with me with this. This is the same author writing these two different books and he says these two different things that just seem contradictory in one sense. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him Yep, we've heard that one. And yet in 1 John 2, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world because if you love the world, the the love of the Father is not in him. So it's like love the world, but love the world, but God loves the world, but he's not happy, is he, with the current arrangement of the world? God's not happy with the powers of empire and the oppressor that come to oppress And so how might we, Redeemer, today, how might we, as I set this series up, as I hopefully have helped us give a little bit of a vision of who we are as a community, as a local church, how might we live part and apart at the same time? How might we live as resident aliens in a strange age with all of the threats and challenges and stories around us that constantly invite us into a different narrative. How can we survive all of that without putting Jesus second? Well, Redeemer, we are a people. We are a people. This is not uh, a social club. This is not, this is not what this is. Even if we think it may be, we are actually a prophetic people. The fact that we gather, 
We are residents in exile. We are the people of God. And this is why the local gathered community of followers of Jesus is so important. This is why the local church is so important. The local expression of that new thing that God's doing, that new society, that new flourishing way to be human, the kingdom of God. And so how do we survive this? We need some tools. We need baptism. We need the church calendar. We need liturgy. We need the creed. We need the songs, the stories that shape us and script us in the way of Jesus. Just like the Jews in Babylon needed their stories to remind them who they were and their rituals. I mean, the Jews in Babylon, they they were living and planting gardens and working, and yet they were practicing Passover and Yom Kippur. Like they were they were residents, but they were also distinct. Daniel did not feast the way that all of the other men feasted. And just like that, we as the church, when we gather, when we form community, we are a prophetic people. We're rooting ourselves in the story as the people of God when we do that. We're resident aliens with our own story and we need to constantly rehearse that story lest we forget it. We need to constantly re-script ourselves lest we forget it. We need to constantly reenact the story lest we forget it through the church calendar, through songs and scriptures and prayers and practices. The church comes together as this community of resident aliens living out the story of God in the world. And hopefully as we do that, we can plant some gardens. We can tear down some walls and we can plant some gardens and we can cultivate in our own lives and families and communities places where life grows and where the river flows and where the grace and the goodness and the love of God can take root. This is why everything we do here at Redeemer, even when we forget to push it, is really because of mission because this church and every church doesn't exist just for itself. As I said earlier, we're not really a social club. There's better things to be doing on Sunday morning, like walking the beach and reading The Guardian or The Observer. We'd all be a bit richer because we wouldn't have to give or tithe or any of that stuff. We wouldn't have to deal with all the problems and the people that are different from us, the people that are too conservative, the people that are too progressive. We wouldn't have to deal with all the different different ways we interpret the scriptures or the different books that we read or we wouldn't have to deal with different people that are just so unlike us. And yet there's something that pulls us together in our difference, holds us together, and it's this new thing that God is doing. He says that the level, the, the playing field is leveled, the equal, it's equalized at the cross. Everyone comes, everyone's an icon, everyone's the same. So this is why we push, that we, everything we do is about our city. It's about our city. And it has to be about our city. We have to begin to move beyond ourselves. We have to begin to look up and exist for Belfast, a city on a hill, a light to the nations, because in Christ, we are not citizens of GB, Great Britain, or the Northern Ireland, or the Irish Utopia, or if you're American, you're not loyal to the stars and stripes, ultimately. There's confusion all over the world when it comes to what is it means to be Christian and what it doesn't. No, we primarily, first and foremost, are citizens of heaven, and we pledge our allegiance, not to kings or presidents, but to one who is called Jesus. He is our king. And so when we forget that, we start to call things Christian that just aren't Christian. We start to label things that are Christian. We start to hanker for a time when it was a Christian nation trying to protect the golden age, trying to force laws through that make everyone conform to live that way or take things by force. This is not the calling of the church to protect the golden age of Christendom. We have to look up and chart a new way forward. We have to look forward in hope, walking with Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven. As Paul talks about in Philippians, he just says what I've just said, verse 20. In Philippians 3, your citizenship is in heaven. From it, we wait a savior, a Lord Christ Jesus. 
So, Redeemer, our hearts are rooted in a different kingdom, not in powers of political gain or sectarianism or idealism or national pride, but our hearts as followers of the way are to be rooted in the values of the kingdom of God where truth and beauty, compassion and meekness and humility and enemy love happen. Where outcasts are welcomed, where wounded hearts are cared for and healed. Let me just read this quote. Um, We're nearly there, coming into land. By Douglas Jones, he says this, the gospel of Christ is not It's not primarily about getting into heaven or by living a middle-class, comfortable, pious life, a.k.a. Christendom. It's about being free from the ancient, pervasive, and delightful oppression of mammon or of the world in order to create a very different community. The church, an alternative city kingdom here and now on earth, by means of living and celebrating the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of joyful weakness, of self-denial, of sharing, of foolishness, of community, and of love overcoming evil. I'd love you guys to stand. I'd love to invite the musicians up. This is our identity as the church. This is who we are. We are a people, resident aliens, salt and light, planting gardens, pointing the way to Jesus. And our Christian calendar actually helps us see that Pentecost is coming up. As Dave was saying, Pentecost is, we're right in between Easter and Pentecost. As we reorient ourselves in the Christian calendar, that's where we locate ourselves coming up to Pentecost as we remind ourselves of the time when God poured out his spirit upon the people and he instituted the church, this new way of living in the world and being human. And in doing so, that crossed all sorts of boundaries and lines. And so one of the most potent practices of the church the gathered church as resident aliens is the table of Jesus. This is the most potent and powerful practice because the table hopefully lands everything that we've been talking about today. The table subverts the strata of the empire, of the cultural powers and the political powers of our day. It tells a better story. The table tells a better story points to a better world, it's incendiary, it's explosive, it's disruptive to the power of the culture. The table says all are welcome, everyone's an icon. Empire and the pervading modern culture is all about levels, leveling up, level up, level up, hierarchy, who has the power, from the brick-making people to the pharaoh. We are the people of the Hebrews, the weak, the oppressed, the, the, the weak, the lonely, and the lowly, the ones who are powerless. So that's why we sing. Do you know that song we sing, All the Poor and Powerless, All the Lost and Lonely? Shout it, scream it from the mountains, because that is our song. This is our God. God is a bias toward the poor and the oppressed because they needed lifted up. And all those divisions of rich and poor, powerless and powerful, male and female, Jew and Gentile, get obliterated at the table. This is radical egalitarianism right here. The the table of Jesus levels the playing field. It is the great equalizer and it sits at the center of every church community around the world. It sits at the center of our church community. It's the meal of resident aliens, the meal of exiles that come unworthy, come seeking grace, come with our brokenness and our sin and our shame to find hope and belonging And we don't stop anybody from coming to the table because it's not our table, it's the Lord's table. And it's his generous, gracious, hospitable, welcoming inclusion of one and all 
in our differences and our similarities, he throws open his arms and welcomes us home, out of exile to his kingdom. So with that, I just want to pray and I want to invite you guys to come as we worship and as we sing to reorientate yourself in this weird and wonderful story that we find ourselves in. Maybe to repent of the ways that we see the church, that it's just there for us, it's for me and my needs, that it's just the social club and it's void of any sense of power or prophetic power to call out in culture was not good. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to come because you need grace today and you need to experience the love of Jesus and the welcome because you have been oppressed, because you have been at the hands of the empire, of the pharaohs, of the powers. Wherever you're at today, you're welcome at the table. Let's come as, re- let's come as, as resident aliens in Belfast today. Let's come and celebrate Christ. Father, I just thank you for the time we've had together Thank you for the table. Thank you for the table of Jesus. Thank you for this image of community, the church, as both residents in this city, planting gardens, seeking the welfare of the city, but also as a prophetic light, pointing the way to a better story. And Lord, I just pray that you would just meet us powerfully in the bread and in the wine as we celebrate Christ, who is our deliverer and our liberator today. Jesus' name. Amen. Please do come forward as Connell and the band lead us. Um, Come forward. Bring your friends, your family. Let's break bread. Um, Let's take wine. Let's celebrate um, Christ today.